Watch Galaxy Morons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me is Mr. Normie Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Oftentimes, when considering philosophical problems, we seat them within the context of the empirical knowledge we've gained as a species, doing our best to remove our own biases and attempting to remain objective when coming to conclusions. While this seems like a logical approach, it downplays the most important factor in examining reality, the human experience. Today we'll begin looking at the philosophical paradigm of existentialism by examining its de facto founder, Soren Kierkegaard. Alright, so um, last week we, we looked at epiphenomenalism, and um, you know that was the idea of, hey, is everything we experience, can that all be explain, explained by um, our physical brain and body and environment, mm-hmm. or is there something else to it? Um, Kierkegaard would definitely not be an epiphenomenalist. No, no, not in the least. <laughs> Why don't you tell us a little bit about, about who he is? All right. Um, then uh, you know this as you've read. So Kierkegaard uh, was born in 1811, uh, or they're, they're close to that, and, and died in 1853. So he lived to be... Uh, roughly 43 years old and so a lot of compacted into a, a brief life he uh, was born into a large family his father did die while he was at college um his father was very disappointed that he'd gone to he'd gone to university to study theology and then he switched to literature and philosophies <laughs> happens to us sometime yeah. um and uh, but he he was fascinated with the idea of of dynamic Christianity. He didn't call it that, but it's essentially he it's about confronting choices and and making choices and and bringing passion into what you do and how you approach things and and not to settle into a, a weekly pattern um, and and he was very he was very concerned and put off by Lutheranism and the idea of uh, the, so much ritual and ordinary and the religion should be primarily rational and and fit within the week and and, and that, that wasn't where he was gotcha so um yeah so it, it kind of goes back to some of the things we've talked about in the past right this this idea of awe or the sublime or something yeah you know that that sort of concept of something bigger than yourself which we talked about last week right epiphenomenalism we were talking about well you know if, if everything's brain based and it all has some sort of evolutionary explanation and it's all very rational then why do we feel sublime or awe or mm-hmm. you know these these things that that seem so much bigger than ourselves what's what's the uh what's the purpose of those sorts of things and kierkegaard was definitely um in that scene he would say faith right yeah yeah, yeah. so he's he's kind of he's considered the founder of existentialism yeah. by many people um what's existentialism in a nutshell the idea that uh, nothing in the universe is going to make any decisions for you now, he, he being, as you say, the de facto first, his variety, his <laughs> brand, I hate that word, but we're in the 21st century, was, was Christian existentialism. Uh, but in any case, whether that or later on to Sartre, we'll talk about at some point down the line, but he, he was focused on the idea that to live an authentic life, one must uh, embrace the, the notion that no one, no one else is going to make choices for you and that the choices you make are not for someone else to tell you they were the right or the wrong choice, uh, but that ultimately, if you're pursuing a spiritual path, you will come to the place where uh, you realize, talking about the sublime, you realize that there's no way, he, he said, wrote, there's, there's no way to prove that God exists. Nothing proves that God exists. The only thing you do is abandon yourself to faith 
that, that God exists and to the paradox of, of being so tiny and yet uh, able to find authentic uh, expansiveness in that faith. That's some pretty powerful stuff, yeah, especially when you think about, um, you see it within the context of Christianity at his time or Christianity today or all throughout history, right? Yeah. And you think about, um, oftentimes, organized Christianity falls into, um, it loves to dictate um, yeah. rules or things that yeah. you should, <laughs> things that you should go by. He found it worldly. He said it was, it had lost itself because it was, well, sort of uh, if, if sticking with the sacred text is rather, uh, it's rather Philistine. <laughs> Micromanaging rules and regulations and do this and you'll be okay. But don't lose yourself in passion. Don't, uh, because that, that, and Kierkegaard says you, yes, you, you must live with passion. To live with passion means you're going to make uh, huge mistakes, and you, but you are alive in making of those mistakes and living with those choices and that you have to work at it by being in the moment with all the things you're going through as a matter of faith. He, 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 he was, so I, we, we can get to what he wrote later, but if you want to, but yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's interesting seating it within, um, within his faith because if you actually look at a lot of the the new testament writings about jesus right mm -hmm. a lot of jesus's doctrine is very similar to that sort of thing and you know people embraced, yeah, yeah people come up to him and, and want to talk about the old testament laws and he'll say hey listen you know love god and treat your neighbors good you know? yeah yeah <laughs> there you go you know yeah or you know he he associated he had dinner with tax collectors and you know um prostitutes and all kinds of people that other people wouldn't associate with. Right. You know, yeah. we, we were having a problem um, in a local town where there was a church during um, the Pike Fair yes. that was sitting oh out and, and heckling yeah. people for how they looked. Yeah. They, I mean, they didn't even know if, there, if they were doing anything unbiblical or sinful. And worse than heckling. They were they were out and out verbally abusing people. Right. Uh, right. So, oh my gosh. So, yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting to, to go through, and I mean with any text, but especially in this case with the Bible, to go through and, and read what it actually says and then see how the organized followers of the religion, and of course Christianity has many sects and every right. religion has many yeah, sects. Has many different sects. Um, but see how the things have been interpreted over the years, how they've been adjusted, what sort of um, ruts and flows people have fallen into. Yeah. But yeah, looking back at the essence of what was actually being said um, is always kind of an interesting thing. And it seemed like Kierkegaard was, um, he was definitely in the spirit of, of interpreting it as close to the way it was written from the, the, the few source texts that you have, trying to make, um, trying to, to uh, you know, interpret it as best as possible. Yeah. So, what was the state of philosophy prior to existential, and what was the impetus for him to to sort of develop this well he was you know schopenhauer was was uh kant uh so it's uh, I, the, the 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 state of philosophy was a, a, a rationalist reason reasoning uh concentrating on everything moving into uh, the context of rationality and, and reason. And that's what his, uh, uh, Kierkegaard's, uh, one of his uh, castigations of Lutheranism and the organized church was that it, it was far too dependent upon reason and rationality and tamping down uh, passion. I didn't by, by passion yelling at people and, and, and going into orgiastic frenzies. He was uh, talking about, uh, another way of putting it would be embracing your emotions, knowing that there are things that you will not be able to say that you know. So Kierkegaard would, I think, uh, with someone current, 
who claims to know God. I just know God. And Kierkegaard would say, nonsense. Mm. No, because what you've done then is you're, you're not in an authentic quest for your spirituality. For, for him, you have to come to terms that you don't know. It's not embedded in you. And, and so you can't know, but you can learn. Yeah, yeah. And um, even outside of religion, right? Well, I, I like the example you used last week of going to Letchworth Park, right? And you have the awe and the sublime of, yeah. of seeing yeah. the, the, the canyons and stuff. Um, you can take that example and say, okay, I look out at, at the gorge at Letchworth Park and I know how it was formed. Well, no, you don't because you weren't there over <laughs> millions of years of, yeah. you know, erosion and geological shifting and stuff. You have some information, um, based off of the science and, and the, the sort of knowledge that we've collected over time. But as we've looked at over the past several months, knowledge is a very fickle thing <laughs> and what you know and what you think you know and, um, all of these different things are, are very fragile. So, and, and they're changing, right? We've talked yes. about that when we, when we were talking about science, you know, some people get frustrated because the science is ever evolving. They say, well, then, then it's fake or the scientists don't know what they're talking about, but really you're just gaining new data and you're trying to interpret things new ways. And Kierkegaard embraced the idea of change. Right. That, that, that it's not a one-time thing, right? It, it, as, as you're just describing. So it's, you come to think that you know things through teachers. Um, he goes in his book, Fear and Trembling. I love the title of his book, Either or Fear and Trembling, uh, Postscript uh, on Scientific, some, uh, I forget the last <laughs> book, that, and, and, and the Philosophical Meanderings. It's not meanderings, but it's something, you know, he's, he's just. He, he pretty much comes right out and says, so fear and trembling, he concentrates on this fascinating piece. He, he concentrates on the story of Abraham and Isaac. And, um, you know, so Abraham believes that God is testing his faith. Take your son, go to Mount Moriah or Moria and, and um, sacrifice your son. And, and as the, the son is riding along with him on this three-day journey, he's coming to realize what his father's doing and what his father intends to do. And and at the last minute, uh, as he's setting the fire for the sacrificial pyre and ties up his son, then out of the corner of his eye, he sees a ram. And uh, knows, or rather believes, by faith that God has said, okay, you've, you've, you've proven your faith, sacrifice the ram to me, not your son. There's a lot of squishiness in there for me. And, and, and I, and this is why I find it fascinating to read uh, sacred texts and stories and mythology, folklore, because they really do examine a lot of psychological and philosophical stuff ground. But for, for Kierkegaard, this whole book is about uh, essentially deconstructing this, this story to find out what it's about, and this is what he's grounding part of his existential philosophy in, that, that uh, Abraham in that story gives up in the sense of, of, of relents to, to the absurd, and the absurd is doing this thing of going to kill your son because uh, God wants it. And in the, and the, cho in the, the anxious of that choice, Abraham Kierkegaard asserts Abraham transforms, and th that Isaac transforms too. Well, to me, transforms would be, yeah, Dad, you were going to kill me, and now you know. I mean, come on, uh, <laughs> but but the the crux of of Kierkegaard's position on this is that. Uh, Everyone misses the boat when they talk about, well, and Abraham became this marvelous Christian afterwards. We, we have the, went up, he was going to sacrifice his son, did, and people, and, and, and Kierkegaard insists on, you must think about all of the things that Abraham 
and Isaac, but Abraham primarily and his tale are, are going is going through the agony, the the self doubt, the what am I actually doing, and I'm still choosing to do this. You know, the voice in my head saying, "Kill your son," and and I'm I no, yes, okay, no, yeah, the, the utter the disintegration of of the self in that uh, moment that's that's existential angst that Sartre talks about later yeah and it's interesting because there's so much missing from that story in the text right you have a half a page describing what happened but i mean if you think about it okay you have you have days of of doing this you know what's going on and, and there's lots of debate in the christian community about well did abraham know god was gonna provide a substitute or was he going to actually be willing to kill Isaac even if nothing showed up? You know? And that's and that it's good you brought that up because uh, that is the very thing that the Kierkegaard Kierkegaard uh, confronts. Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard thought of himself as a Socratic uh, uh, Socratic uh, gadfly. He called himself that. Was Socrates was his hero, so or one of them. <laughs> And there's the the paradox, uh, which is which is what philosophy has talked about for a, a long time in various ways. If Plato was right, the idealism, the idealist notion, you're born into the world having knowledge of the world, but you've forgotten it, and you have to find it. And then you've got the problem of well, if you've already if you already know it and you're coming back to know it again, you can't really know it authentically for the first time, and so you don't really know it. And the other side of that is well, if I don't know anything, the only way I can is for teachers to help me come to terms with it. And so that's why he was fascinated with, uh, so it seems, with with the idea of the, the totally absurd profoundly paradigmatically paradoxical idea that God is master of the universe, this totally unknowable thing. Well, how is he going to uh, be the teacher? Well, then he has to incarnate as, as a humble human teacher, as you just mentioned before. Um, so then you, you have nothing but to accept on faith, uh, if you take Jesus as as uh, the sacred figure, there's no proof. There's no proof. Even miracles are not proof, because there are many. If you, if, do, do, do we know that person was blind? Did I actually see that? Am I back in the crowd a little bit? You know, and and then people make up varieties of stories about what they saw. So there's that's not knowledge. It's 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 faith, but it's an active faith that that. Uh, Kierkegaard is saying you have to agonize, you have to question, you have to come to terms with the fact that you're questioning, and then you have to make choices that no one else is going to make. God's not going to make your choice for you. That is not who God is. God does not tell you what to do. For, for Kierkegaard, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, like you mentioned, he was he was highly influenced by um, Socrates, and he did think of himself as a gadfly, and he went so far as to. Um, write a lot of different works under pseudonyms yeah and um some scholars say you know it's funny because in in a historical retrospect lots of people look at um people who write in pseudonyms and think almost like there's an expectation that people are know who you are but that isn't really the case in a lot of instances and in a lot of instances authors are tr- actually trying to remain anonymous um and then they get found out later on mm-hmm. through through um Discovery. So, a lot of scholars think that he wrote under pseudonyms to try to undermine his own authority, so that people wouldn't um, think of him as being the authoritative expert on Christianity. That's sort of an interesting thought. Um, do you have anything you wanna you wanna talk about as far as the pseudonyms or or his perspectives on on writing different works? I well, I uh, I, I will limit it to. to the to this. I think that itself is, you know, there are various degrees of certainty or not certainty, but uh, about the pseudonymous uh, writing. 
but uh, some of it is pretty is short, or seemingly so. <laughs> so the it is as you just said. It's to me that is the existential process. Yeah. Um, uh, and some might say, well, it's a, a lack of, of, of courage, and, and, and perhaps it is, because you're not a superhero because you're an existentialist or anything else. You know, it's, it's always about that, um, that, that coming to terms. And, and I think part of it was a humility that uh, I like to think, and that's just me, that, uh, that he was embracing in the sense that, uh, you know, he wrote about people and, and, and freedom, and people de- want and people demanding to have the freedom of speech when they don't even use their freedom of thought. And so, it's not so important who's saying it, as that it, it's thoughtful, not not demanding reason and rationality every moment, but 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 still thinking and feeling your way through. What might or might not be so, and so a, a Sudan a, a pseudonymous uh, situation gives you a chance to be a Greek chorus. Yes, no, either, or. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. We were uh, we were in dinner at your house last night, and your wife Mary brought up um, this how Twitter would send her notifications, and she'd only be able to see the first couple words of a sentence, and then her only options were either to like it or retweet it, right? Yeah, yeah, well, how yeah. can you have an opinion if you don't even know the full thought <laughs> exactly. that's being expressed? That's yeah. kind of what Kierkegaard was saying about his, you know, people in his time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the the pseudonyms are are interesting because, he, you know, he'd release, he'd release books on the same day that had opposing viewpoints <laughs> and, and that sort of thing. And to me, that's, I mean, that's, grade a philosophy right <laughs> you know and especially when it comes to existentialism because you know it's 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 not about the objectivity it's about subjectivity you know so you're he's he's try, he's wrestling with these things and trying to um you know come to some sort of terms with things and part of doing that is looking at things from opposing angles mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so what else was unique about his approach to subjectivity what what did he write on it that well subjectivity is not relativism there there's uh, there's a pretty clear insistence that he uh, gives about that so to have to, to when he writes about subject subjective knowledge he's not saying well, I have my own kind of knowledge, and you have your own kind of knowledge, and they can't. He's saying that knowledge emerges from um, a passion and emotion uh, as much or more than than it does from just strict reasoning, and so that so it's bound to be subjective because you're going to make leaps and in intuitional gap climbing that are crossing that the strict logic wouldn't necessarily allow for yeah it, it's funny i was reading an article um earlier today that said um neuroscientists are are saying that um reality is um formed through controlled hallucinations of the brain right and it really sounds like they're getting at the same thing that Kierkegaard's getting at, but one through an epiphenomenological framework, right? Yeah. They're they're basically saying, okay, well, what's what reality is is unique to each individual. You're just sort of hallucinating it. You're making it up in your brain, but it's it's coming from your brain. Whereas Kierkegaard would say, yeah, reality is individual, and 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 what is. But there truth. is truth. There right, is yeah. some kind of truth right. structure there. Yeah, there is truth yeah. arrived at through the individual, but it's not coming from your brain. It, it's out there, right? Yep, yep. yep. So yep. it is, you know, that's like you mentioned um, off air before we started. You know, people like to think of existentialism as being dead. But really, even with our cutting edge, um, y- you know, research, there's still some of that leaking in there where. I think think that a lot of scientists and researchers don't want to be 
confronted with it, but there is, there's always that thing staring you in the face of, we can't objectively account for some of these things, consciousness and, and knowledge. Yeah, there's that, but we wrestle, but he had a metaphor that I, that I very much like. Most people in in his view, he said, or maybe didn't say most, if if people um, just go along accepting what everyone tells them to accept because they want to believe it and, and not thinking. See, this is where he did insist on thinking slash feeling your way through. Not grasping for what you want to be so, but there's where the logic is. Mm-hmm. But to uh, examine through your own filter and experience. Um, people who just go along, the mob followers, he calls, he <laughs> call people Christian mob sometimes, and, and he, he didn't have much time for that. And, 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 and he said that those, that, that's people who are riding along in a hay wagon. They've gone to sleep in the hay wagon. They're just riding along. Mm. He said the authentic person who is, uh, who is, goes through the, the absurdity of, of, and, and the anxiety of confronting choices is a rider of a wild stallion. Mm. You're going to get hurt. You're going to get bumped. You're going to get shaken up, and your adrenaline's going to be moving, and and you will not be the same person before that you were before you got on that stallion. Whereas you're bumping along in the hay wagon, you're, you're you're half asleep. Yeah, and you, that is a great a great sort of analogy because it that is the difference between having it very easy and having it very hard is whether you're going to justify what you believe through your feelings or whether you're going to justify how you feel through your beliefs yeah. right yeah he's he said that he, uh, he, he wrote about the, uh, uh spoke about that there uh, the the subjective n- uh, knowledge is the choice you make based on no criteria at all and at the moment you start, well, should I do this? Well, if I, I if I do this, then A, B, and C, uh, because my dad or my mom might have told me not to, or whatever. There's a rubric, right? Well, there are your criteria, and and you start doing that, then you're not making your own decision. Hmm. You're making a decision within the framework of expectation, within the framework of past practice, within the framework of any number of different data points, as we would say. And that's not authentic. Yeah. Yeah. And um, we'll see this. We're going to do a couple of episodes on different existential philosophers. Um, but what you'll see is existentialism. Um, the different flavors of it are radically different. You know, Kierkegaard is is a Christian existentialist. Um, but absurdist um are very different, you know, and, and that's essentially what, what they're saying is Christianity is sort of the anchor for Kierkegaard's philosophy. So he has existentialism anchored in Christianity. An absurdist has existentialism anchored in nothing, right? And that the conclusions you come to and the worldviews that you have are vastly different between those two things, even though they both fall into the into the realm of existentialism. You can believe just what you want to believe and and act on fulfilling your own what you want he he said well that that, then you're a hero of of your of yourself you can work at trying to do things people expect of you and then you're a a hero to some people but only when you abandon Certain seeming certainty, make your choices, and then go through with how you're going to live, and then you're a, a hero with God, mm-hmm. in a sense. He didn't, he didn't heroic. He, he wasn't using the hero in the third instance, but still, 
and I think he was a time traveler. I just have to say it. <laughs> I'd, the most painful state of being is remembering the future, particularly the one you'll never have. That's Merlin. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. you know, remember, <laughs> what? What? He was a Christian? Yeah. <laughs> Remembering the future, particularly the one you will never have. And I think partly what he gets at with that is we so anticipate things that we are sure how they're going to be. And, 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 and we have to keep in mind, he wasn't throwing away the idea of being rational at all. He wasn't throwing away knowledge. But when you are uh, get to a place where you, you are just in, in think you're, you're, if the future is your, your criteria, and what do you know about the future? Only what you, you're being told and primarily what you're feeling. Well, then the one that you're not going to have, which that's, which is really it. You're not going to have the future because you're not going to live forever. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But you're still living in the future by, the, and so it, it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think it comes back to choice, right? Yeah. Like he was saying is that if you, if you take up that position, um, which is very antithetical to a lot of Christian belief, but, but saying, listen, I can't prove that there's God through any sort of objective means, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I have to make my own choices and decisions about belief and faith and these sorts of things. Then that brings in that perspective as well. Well, the painful future is the one that you're not going to have. What that I think part of what that's saying too is, you know, you're if you're going to agonize over these choices. And then your life is going to turn out some way and you're going to think about if you had made different choices, what, right. what else would have And that's not authentic agony. You're just pretending agony. Right. Um, which is an interesting, it, it sounds kind of harsh, but I don't, I, I think it's justifiably so. You know, uh, it, there's a Tom Stoppard play that I was discussing with a friend recently, and and, and it's about uh, the, the uprisings, uh, the, the summer of 1968, and and what was going on in um, um, uh, Czechoslovakia, and and anyway, uh, it's uh, so. Do you write a letter in support of a dissident who's who's been uh, imprisoned, and write it because? You want other people to know that you've written it, and therefore you're you're essentially leeching on the the authentic act of the dissident, or you do it because you legitimately want to get them out. But if you do that, are you going to cause them more trouble? Hmm. And and but you're still not the dissident in agony, hmm. right? Right. Um, so then that's not the anxious choice that that the existentialist would. And then we have the, you know, but he couldn't also live in the future. So he, he didn't talk about other religions. He just talked about, because he lived in Denmark his whole life, essentially. And he was just, so he's a local boy. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Um, so he, he wrote, the Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. <laughs> we pretend to be unable to understand it. Because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. <laughs> so let's just be the the guy in the hay cart, right? Let's not ride the wild stallion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's wild. Um, can you? Ex what else? Like, how did? Uh, so we're kind of talking about his relationship of a subject to their to their faith or to their beliefs. Um, do you think faith and beliefs in those two contexts are? Um, similar or what would how would he look at that faith for Kierkegaard as I partially because one keeps understanding comes to more understanding because he was a teacher too faith is a process an active process it involves for Kierkegaard constantly confronting uh, the choices that one has and the stories 
and be and active and not just proving to people you've got lines memorized that you can toss out to use in a certain argument to say, well, according to this book and chapter and verse, no, but to actively think about and feel through and keep re-engaging with uh, stories to learn more from them, to figure out that maybe you were wrong. And then you got to keep understanding that you're wrong. You're going to be more wrong. You can't be, oh, I'm right. I've converted to Christianity, and therefore, everything that I do is an act of God. No. Nope, you're still wrong. You're still sin. You're still everything, uh, according to Kierkegaard. Uh, I'm going to read you a passage. Okay. Because okay. I think this now, the, uh, taken from his time, it will reveal a, a, a sexism. I'm not supporting that, I, but it's in there. Marry, and you will regret it. Don't marry, you will also regret it. Marry or don't marry, you will regret it either way. Laugh at the world's foolishness, you will regret it. Weep over it, you will regret that too. Laugh at the world's foolishness or weep over it, you will regret both. Believe a woman, you will regret it. Believe her not, you will also regret it. Hang yourself, you will regret it. Do not hang yourself, and you will regret that too. Hang yourself or don't hang yourself, you'll regret it either way. Whether you hang yourself or do not hang yourself, you will regret both. This, gentlemen, is the essence of all philosophy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this, and this, that's something I've, I've said in the past as well. Um, we, we've talked about regrets before, and anybody that says to me, yeah, I don't have any regrets, like, well, to me, that's somebody that hasn't really so you're examined. You're not engaging. Yeah, they haven't really examined their life very closely. Um, but yeah, and thinking about um, Jesus was fond of speaking in, in parables, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of a good encapsulation of, of existentialism because Jesus spoke in parables. He was obviously trying to relay some truth, but he was speaking in a story that the listeners were free to interpret on their own. Yes. And come to their own conclusions about what the message was in the story. So he didn't didn't just come out here and, and say, "All right, this is this is here's the facts." You know, it was it was mm-hmm. told through this medium of story, and then people would suss out their own meaning, and certain followers would engage with him deeper on it, mm-hmm. and certain followers would get their fill of. Um, magical bread and fish and leave. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, I think that's that's kind of a good a good um, encapsulation of it. He said he said that Luther, Martin Luther, and essentially paraphrasing, we'd all be better off if he'd gone back to his cell, mm. his monastic cell, not a jail cell, instead of hammering his ninety, you know, his theses on the door, um, because. This is such an internal solitudinous process. He, he he said himself that he's not a philosopher. That's interesting. We all talk about him as a philosopher. He said he's a poet. Kierkegaard thought of himself as a poet huh. because you examine and feel and, and deeply, and you shape your lips in such a way that uh, when you say something, people think it's musical, but really it's pain. Hmm. That's funny. So let's look at um, let's look at some speculative questions, right? Okay. Um, Karl Popper said Kierkegaard exposed Christian morality of his day as anti-Christian. Um, do you think that that would hold true for the modern Christian church? <laughs> oh, you want me to be in trouble? But, you know, well, first, uh, as you alluded to before, there or stated very plainly, actually not alluded to there. There is no modern Christian church. Just like there's no uh, dominant medium. Everybody has different channels. There's no common, there's very little, I won't say no, I'll back up. There's very little common culture now. And there's great anxious freedom in that. (laughs) That itself is an existential concept, I think. But if by modern church one means uh, people telling other people what they should and should not do, he'd be all over that. You don't understand what Christianity is. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that you contemplate what God's stories are saying, and, and you try to wrestle with that, and you try to come to terms with it today, and then again tomorrow, and again the next day. 
And if that doesn't lead to some humility, you're really not, you know, if you're so certain, then you've missed even the point about Abraham. Because if Abraham was so certain that God had told him this, then he wouldn't look out of the corner of his eye and change his mind. Psychologically, the man must have been desperate to change his mind. Give me something here so I don't kill this boy. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it, even in the story of Jesus, right? The, before he gets crucified, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane mm-hmm. and asks God mm-hmm. if there's any way that we can do this differently. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't want to get nailed to it's a cross. It's a beautiful <laughs> mo- a human moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, probably Kierkegaard's view on it would be. Um, at any point in history, there's there's Christians on the hay wagon and there's Christians on the stallion. Yes, yes. And what what Christian sect you belong to probably doesn't have a whole lot to do with whether or not you're on the the hay wagon or the stallion. Um, it, it's a it's a very individual thing. Can I tell you another thing you said? Yeah, yeah. I just said because I flagged some of these because he spoke in parables or stories too. Yeah, so yeah. he was living it. And this is in the book Either Or. A fire broke out backstage in a theater. The clown came out to warn the public. They thought it was a joke and applauded. He repeated it. The acclaim was even greater. I think that's just how the world will come to an end. To general applause from wits who believe it's a joke. And that, my friend, is what's happening right now. <laughs> I, Literally. Yeah. The world is on fire. People, the world is on fire and people see the, uh, the person's coming out and saying, this is going to be the end. And the, oh, you clown. Hmm. Whether you're a clown scientist, whether you're a clown CDC person, whether you're a joke, oh, yay, yay, thanks for the entertainment, hmm. the mob says. Yeah, yeah. So, given our scientific advances, do you think Kierkegaard would have changed his opinion on the importance of the natural sciences? <laughs> I, uh, boys. He had some strong language for the natural sciences. Yeah, what what is your what is your uh, encapsulate? Let's go with with one. So, I mean, you can take this almost any direction, right? Almost any any yeah. way you think of it. Yeah. The one that pops out to me um, is um, the idea of the formations of of the universe, okay. um, because in We'll say the modern church, and we'll put it in quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, primarily American Christians are made up of Protestants who believe that in a young Earth a hypothesis that the Earth was created over, yeah over the course of several thousand years, um, and take a literal view on on the first um, first chapters of Genesis. Um, now, back in Kierkegaard's day, there wasn't much to to speak of in terms of scientific knowledge about the outside universe oh well well there there was newton there was yeah yeah yeah, yeah. copernicus anyway we were getting there yeah okay (laughs) um but now we have such thing the biggest one to me the one that is is kind of game changing is the cosmic microwave background right Mm -hmm. you can look back and you can see this picture of the moment when the universe reionized and there was light Mm -hmm. right and we have a, a pretty good way of measuring that distance in mm-hmm. in time because time and dis, you know space are the same thing. So if if you think Kierkegaard was confronted with that evidence today, yeah, do you think how do you think he'd wrestle with the the question? I think that he would. Go with the notion that it's still changing the in- inductive nature of, of things. All right, we uh, if if, we, if Kierkegaard adopts the the current terminology, here here he is. And he can get hold of all of it. Uh, yeah, we have this cosmic radiation. We still can't find the exact single moment when it happened. We still don't know. Uh, we still think that maybe it happened. This is not the first time it happened. So then we're back to previous knowledge that we didn't have because the universe existed and now it exists again. He wouldn't have been wrestling with it from from the from the Hindu or from other uh, uh, traditions uh, yet. Uh, but it would be enough to say, well, I think, 
all right, does that, does that take me to a place where I have these anxious thoughts about the universe? Yes. What are my choices about the universe? Uh, if I have utter faith in God, and that makes me passive, I'm not really a Christian. If I have utter faith in God, then I come to terms with this new knowledge, seeming knowledge, and say, all right, where does that take me with the stories? Where does that take me in what in in the choices that I make? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. The reason that one jumps out in my mind is because, um, you know, I I got some of my college education is through Christian college, mm -hmm. and um, that was one of the projects I had to do was was talk about. Um, they actually had a, a project where they said, okay, well, look at you know any any given topic from from both perspectives and come to a conclusion right mm -hmm. so they want you to give a christian perspective then they want you to give a worldly perspective and then they want you to to draw a conclusion based off of those two things and um that was the one that i picked right i said okay well here's here's my view on it right from a christian perspective you could believe in a young earth hypothesis you could say yes the book of genesis is literal the earth is 6,000 years old or whatever. Mm -hmm. And God did all of that stuff supernaturally because he's all powerful. And maybe he's even manipulated the fabric of space and time to look older for whatever reason, for whatever reason he wanted, right? If God's out there and he's all powerful, he could do anything. He could place dinosaur fossils in the earth to make it look like the earth is old, even though it's not. And then, yes, if that's so, what of, one must do? What must one do? If one takes that that way, what what if God is the clown coming out on stage? What if, and says, "Hey, let's fool him with that." What question would one ask? Right. Why? Yeah. All right. right. What, what is the purpose? So of this? I must engage with that. Why? Mm -hmm. Not say, well, God did, and so therefore God's ways are mysterious, and so therefore, yeah, Kierkegaard was not one to say, oh, let's just go with God's ways are mysterious. Right. That's too simple. Yeah. So he would embrace. Yeah. So that the raises, science. Yeah. So that raises a lot of questions, and then you can look at it the other way and say, in both cases, what it comes down to is, is your belief that God is all powerful, right? And if he is. Could he not create the earth literally in, you know, seven days, six thousand three years old? And could he not literally form it through a big bang and have 14 billion years of evolution and all of these things to create mankind? He could really do both, right? And the reasons behind it are what inform your opinions of what actually happened through an existential view, right? Yes. You're asking me those questions of, well, why would he do it one way or the other? But ultimately, does it matter which way he did it? What matters is how you encounter that universe. Right. Yeah. He, uh, the, the, the reason I cannot really, this is Kierkegaard uh, uh, in his journal, I cannot really say that I positively enjoy nature is that I do not quite realize what it is that I enjoy. A work of art, on the other hand, I can grasp. I can, if I may put it this way, find that Archimedean point. And as soon as I have found it, everything is readily clear for me. Then I'm able to pursue this one main idea and see how all the details serve to illuminate it. But the universe is a mystery. Hmm. It makes you anxious. You have anxiety. You know, people say, I don't want to think about how big space is. Well, they're not engaging. They're in the hay cart. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that's the reason, like, you and I have talked about it on the show pretty regularly. We, you know, we look at stuff from all different viewpoints. And, um, yeah. you know, how close listeners are to knowing what you or I actually believe, um, you know, who knows? Mm -hmm. I mean, because, like you said, in the, the framework of existentialism, I'm not even sure what I believe from day to day, right? It's, it's constantly changing. You're, you're encountering new things. You're, you're thinking about things different ways. Um, but ultimately, when you come back to some of these big questions, right, like the formation of the universe, if you want to look at it religiously and you keep asking why or why, why is it important even, you come back to, well, 
am, and this is the point that I came to in the conclusion of my paper. You know, I know how the the assignment was set up. It was set up so that you have a Christian real point, you have a worldly viewpoint, and then you conclude that you agree with the Christian viewpoint. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, my conclusion was, um, well, it doesn't really matter, but I'm not going to be the one to put God in a box. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. The point is, um, we're here. We have evidence um, explaining things a certain way. Um, Could God have created all of that evidence in order to just trick us? Yes. Why would he want to do that? Um, So as a result, I can't really say. Maybe God is a trickster just trying to weed out anybody who is putting the least the amount of doubt into it and throwing them into hell. Or maybe this is the way the universe was designed and that's just the way he worked through it. And maybe Genesis is actually, um, maybe a thousand years is as a day instead of a day being a literal unit of measurement when the universe is created. Let, let, let's take this that you're saying, so you're, you're giving me thoughts here. You can uh, uh, move along like Abraham. And I have I, I I utterly give myself up to the totally absurd that it, it must mean that God wants me to do this. But then you see the ram outside your eye. You can be the person who's sacrificing yourself to the utter absurdity of of passive faith, and then see the universe out of the corner of your eye and say, ah. Oh, Oh, things aren't quite what, no, okay, phew. And then you can be Carl Sagan, <laughs> who I think was had had a Kierkegaardian streak because Sagan was one of the many things that brilliant man said was that scientists are human. And to be human is to know change. And change is painful. And when you come to terms with the pain of having to talk about the changing knowledge that you've received, then you are doing an active practice. And then he ended that that with, I can't think of an instance in organized religion where that ever happens. <laughs> right. And so that's the thing is, if, if you are a... Um you know, if you're if you're a conservative Christian and you're sitting at home thinking, oh, well, this guy, he doesn't believe that the Genesis literally happened. And, and so he's not a real Christian yeah. or whatever. Or, you know, he believes in this sort of stuff. Well, no, because there's a flip side to that, too. Right. If you have, um, you know, Stephen Hawking or somebody trying to explain the universe in purely objective, empirical terms. Well, guess what? You get to that 300,000 years after the Big Bang. You can't go back any further than that. So you can't rule out God. You can't say that God doesn't exist because like Kierkegaard was saying, trying to prove that God exists or trying to prove that he doesn't exist is something that we'll never be able to do. And so that's where the existential angst comes in. That's Which is why he would not. If you're sitting at home, whether you're an atheistic scientist or whether you're a Bible believing Christian, if you're sitting at home thinking you have all of the answers, you're wrong. Right. <laughs> or you're a Bible-believing Christian who was a practicing scientist, and pre- <laughs> so, well, which there are plenty of, including Francis Collins, who's in charge of the National Institutes of Health. And a lot of people won't believe him because he's... Anyway, so, so yeah, you, you have... Kierkegaard would not say, you're an authentic Christian and you're not. He didn't do that. I can't tell you which choice you're going to make, but it's going to be wrong anyway, (laughs) because you've got to come to terms with some things. It's going to be messy. It's going to be a painful process all the way to the end. Mm. It's not about la, 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 I'm safe now. Right. Yeah. Any any sort of comfortability or safety or um, assured knowledge within a question just doesn't fit within the the paradigm of existentialism. Um, For our last question, do you think there is a way to balance subjectivity and objectivity when philosophizing. <laughs> We've talked about epiphenomenalism yeah. last week. We're talking about existentialism this week. Do you think there's a happy balance or is it like 
relativity and quantum mechanics. You just can never reconcile the two. <laughs> well, there's a messy reconciliation somewhere between the two, but it's not ever complete, and it's not going to be. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Good, good example. Um, we delude ourselves to think we can be entirely objective. Human beings are not. It's just built in. That's the pain that Sagan refers to. So I don't think there is a pure objectivity. And you know, when I was teaching writing classes, and when I still get to work with people sometimes, uh, I would, uh, and not gleefully, but but I, I hope trying to help liberate some students to think, you know, when you're writing for a professional journal, or you're using an APA format, and 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 this, the social sciences for some time re required this of people, although there are places where that's changing. So that rather than say, I broke the ice, the ice was broken. That removes the I semantically, semiotically, but but the I is still there. Right. Yeah. You know, so it, I, it, but it gives the impression that there is a neutrality of observation to try to downplay the I. But even the social scientists know that you can't escape the I. So, so I think that it's already a given that the objectivity is not pure. Mm -hmm. And I think that we see, uh, we can see more than adequate examples of people who try to aim for a pure subjectivity. If you were purely subjective, you would not understand the notion of factuality in the least or of, of any common uh, frame of reference or knowledge. Now, there are people who come mighty close to that these days, but, but not, I would say not so much that they, uh, would uh, declare, I have to be careful, because people declare all kinds of things, but uh, the flat earthers, a few hundred thousand people on the planet who seem to believe that the earth is flat, and we'll, and we'll, and we'll eschew any fact to deny that. So, so there are flavors of almost purest subjectivity, but I don't think ultimately it exists because human beings could not survive if they were not dealing with some kind of data. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's so somewhere in there, 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 uh, there's not a, there's not a passive compromise. There's constant crashing of waves against each other, like the quantum and the, right. Yeah. So it's impossible to isolate the two. And that's, that's a common mistake that people try to make. I think that was a good example, the APA, right? Cause you, you know, on the one hand, you could look at it as just being, essentially smoke and mirrors, right? Oh, well, if I take the eye out, it doesn't really change anything. Like you're still speaking subjectively, you know, as a subject, but I think that there is a purpose to it because mm -hmm. as you're there writing, is. if you go to write that <clears throat> sentence, you're, you're not just thinking about rewording it, but you're thinking about, wait, am I seeing this or is the data and the research that I've done? Precisely. That's it. That's why the style exists, I think. Right. It's not to batter people not to use the word I. It's to think, well, where does the I fit with all of this? Yeah, yeah. So so within that, you're you're examining it closer, but you can never really remove it. And mm -hmm. uh you know, that's I think that that's the uh the hard part of, of doing philosophy or doing science or anything is trying to figure out, okay what what do i believe what do i think that i know objectively and how do i sort of reconcile the two to come up with something that is is workable rational yeah for that moment right yes. until the next yes. thing comes. <laughs> yeah yeah because that can change it can even change from context to context mm -hmm. you know um if how i am approaching subjectivity and you know objectivity when writing an apa paper versus creating an abstract painting you know, these are going to be two totally different things. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this was a cool conversation. I look forward to um, examining some more existential philosophers here over the next couple of weeks. So, until next time, keep pondering.